Welcome to the podcast of Thank God It's Friday. I'm Richard Glover, and as you may have noticed, our TGIF regular, Tommy Dean, has been missing from our panel. He's back in America for a couple of months. And while we've missed him on TGIF, he's instead been joining us with a weekly letter from America. So if you're keen on catching up with him, stay listening at the end of this podcast for Tommy Dean's Letter from America. But first, this week's TGIF. We would like to advise that the following program may contain adult themes, occasional nudity, and language that may offend some listeners. Thank God it's... And welcome to our special isolation lockdown series of Thank God It's Friday. We don't have our live audience at the moment, but we do have the chance to get to know our TGIF regulars a little better. So in the next few weeks, we'll talk about life, love and laughter with various members of our TGIF team. Today, in the first half of the hour, it's the fabulous UK comedian turned Aussie, Jeff Green, talking of how a boy from Chester in the UK, managed to land down under. Then, after the news at 5.30, it's Gene Kitson, star of shows like The Big Gig and Let the Blood Run Free, who more recently has brought her comic skills to issues like the menopause and the plight of older Australians. So, I'm Richard Glover, inviting you to sit back and enjoy TJF, the isolation series. Thank God it's Friday with Richard Glover. Jeff Green was born in Chester in the UK, a a sellout stand-up in Britain. He's also been a panellist on shows like Nevermind the Buzzcocks, Have I Got News For You and Spicks and Specs. He now lives in Melbourne with his wife and two kids and is still incredibly popular on the stand-up circuit. Right now, he's here for us. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon, Richard. Take us back. Thanks for having me back. Must have done something right. (laughs) Pleasure. Take us back to the, this, uh, I think it's a council flat. In, in Chester in the UK, what's, what, what's your folks like? What's the house like? What's the, what's the child you like? Um, well, yes, so I was born on the largest industrial estate in Western Europe, largest housing estate, rather, a place called Blaken in Chester. Um, my parents have been married three times each, so I had a very, very weird upbringing. I've actually had three surnames. People don't know this about me. Green is my third surname. I was born Nielsen, uh, and then I was Thomas for a couple of years, and then I was Green. Kids at school thought I was on a witness protection program. <laughs> Changing my name, so um, very, very, but but pretty much standard for a lot of comics to have um, a disjointed childhood. One of seven children, um, obviously large Catholic family. My parents are Jewish, but that's uh, irrelevant. Um, yeah, so that was me growing up. A um, lot of lot of lot of humour, a lot of, humor, lot of uh, tension in the family, which we used humour to, to get through. Um, and I think that's where I got my comic skills from. And also being one of the youngest for quite a while, you know, um, often comedians are the youngest because they they seek attention um, that their elder siblings are getting. So it sounds like this is a very crowded council flat. How many kids are living there at the time you arrive? So um, there was me and my two sisters uh, and then my two brothers came from a, a home um, they were brought to us, uh, my two half-brothers. Um, they ran away. 
when they were um, 11. And so then it was back to to me and my sisters and my parents. Parents got divorced and I got two other sisters that came from a new marriage. Then my brothers came back and uh, there were seven at one point. And, and yeah, it was very, um, it was very crowded. I say to my kids now, you know, because obviously we spoil our children. My kids, they've got their own bedroom. I say, you guys don't know where you're born. I was doing my O-levels with four boys in the house, in the, in the bedroom that I was sleeping in. My kids have got a desk. They've got a trampoline. You know, it's, it's very different these days. So the constant, uh, by the sound of things, is your mother. And I know this from one of your recent uh, shows. The other constant is sitting with your mother, listening to stories from Australia, curiously. Yes. So um, what we used to listen to in the UK was a show called uh, Two Way Family Favourites. And it came from the, uh, uh, the forces radio when, um, when all the, the army and, and the navy were scattered across the old empire. Um, so, you know, Hong Kong, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, um, Germany. And, um, and they, would, they would, instead of, you know, text messaging and FaceTime and everything, they used to um, write into the, to the BBC with these little postcards saying, you know, all remember us um, back home, it's uh, grand. 80th birthday and it was always played at 12 o'clock um, on lunchtime on a Sunday mm. and we would sit and listen to that but of course then it morphed over the years as the empire shrank to to really a lot of it just being between Australia, uh, Hong Kong and the UK so I would grow up listening on a Sunday with my mum as she's cooking roast dinner um, to these these people who are from Yakandanda and yes. you know and Elizabeth and Wyala and, and all the places that that the old poms, um, ten pound poms, had had found themselves, and and then just sending these little postcards home. And I thought these places were incredibly exotic, and I sort of pictured these this bleached sunshine world. But of course, underneath all of that was this incredible homesickness that people were showing um, for their families that they couldn't, you know, fly home at the blink of an eye. They couldn't afford it. So um, I grew up thinking of Australia and thinking how how this this relationship between the two countries existed. Um, Not realising, obviously, I I would find myself years later in exactly the same position um, of missing my family. And, and isn't it wonderful because you're speaking on the radio. So the, the, that show was played on this radio station back in the 60s, so you're now back on the radio station through which people on this side of the world were listening to the family favourites from, from England. So there's a, there's a circle for you. There's a connection, yeah. I think it was about on a, maybe 10 o'clock or something in Australia and, yep. um, and then obviously midday in the UK. No, I remember you got, the rough, in... <laughs> you got I... the rough end of it. I remember sitting in the car with my parents listening to it. And what was interesting about the the 10-pound poms was lots of them did go back for a while. And there's a whole, you know, maybe as many as a third of them would come and then go back. And then some of those that went back would then come back again. Uh, You know, they would spend uh, 10 years trying to decide being pulled one way and then the other. That, and you're absolutely right, mate. And yeah, those boomerangs, they do go back. And, um, and a lot of them um, went to financial ruin, you know, just um, by selling up and just and coming back and couldn't make a decision. And the families, and of course, one, one, um, you know, one member of the marriage would be happy here and the other one would want to go home. And then, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, there's, there's an incredible amount of tragedy uh, attached to that period. 
Jeff Green is here. You mentioned your O-levels. You must have done pretty well because you went off to university. I think you studied chemical engineering, didn't you? <laughs> I did, which I always say to people, which basically means I can make a bong out of anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I did. I, I was I was very lucky. I was the boy um, from my family, the first um, person to go to uni. Um, I think people my age, you know, in their sort of 40s and 50s, there is someone that just sort of breaks through that barrier in the 70s and 80s that gets themselves to uni and then everyone else follows. Mm. So I was the first one. I did. Um, I was very good at sort of maths, physics and chemistry. And also, you know, I spent a lot of time um, escaping the world by, by getting into books um, and then I sort of, yeah, so I did well in my O-levels and then my A-levels and then um, went to Birmingham University. And uh, But, you know, gosh, it didn't cost me anything in those days. You could do that. You know, that's the thing. You could, you could go to uni. You got, I got a full grant. Um, I'm still spending that grant, Richard. <laughs> I saved so much while I was at university. She still got like thirty quid left from that. Um, and then you know, and you and you didn't have to. The, the great thing about it, is it didn't saddle you with debt. And I always say to people, you know, the the terrible thing about debt is it, it sort of limits your choices. And um, so I went through uni um, and and did chemical engineering, probably realizing really deep down that I didn't want to be a chemical engineer. Um, but I went through it and got my two one and. and and then worked for BOC. Um, and that was slowly, I was slowly starting to think I want to do something else. And that's when I went to a comedy club in 1987 um, with my friend to um, at the comedy store in, in London, in Leicester Square. Comedy was really new. Live comedy was really new in those days. And, and you were um, what, like 23 or something, were you? I was 23, yeah, 23. My girl, uh, the girl I was going out with, who I was engaged to at uni, had dumped me. And I was, and uh, my mate t said, I'll take you there, cheer you up. So, um, and it was the, this really hot ticket to get to the comedy store down in this basement. And, um, yeah, so I was 23, 24. And, and it was just a, like a road to Damascus revelation. I was just sitting in the audience going, that's what I want to do. And so how did you make it happen? So, well, as I was leaving the comedy store, there's a little sign. I don't even know if they still do it. There was a little sign, A4 piece of paper, and it was written on the comedy store-headed um, note paper that just said, it, written in, 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 um, in biro, interested acts. If you want to try out in the open spot, that's the amateur spot at the comedy store, which we, I just watched because they, they used to play the whole show and then at the very end they go, well, that's the end of the show. Now we've got some amateurs, some, some uh, tryouts. And, of course, the audience would just start rubbing their hands with glee and just one of these people were thrown to the lions. But, uh, and that was, about, that was the position, I, that was the thing I wanted to try. Um, they said, if you want to try out in this open spot, contact the, the staff and they'll give you something. So... That's when I went, oh, that, so that's how you make the connection. Because otherwise I would have had no idea how you go from being a chemical engineer by day to a comic at night if I hadn't seen that piece of paper. So what was that first tryout like? So, um, well, there was a, there was a, um, there's a little a, a step between that trying out. My, I, I said, I want to try this. But then I actually went to a thing called Jackson's Lane Cabaret Workshop, which was in Highgate in North London. It was on a Tuesday night, and I paid £5 before I'd even done a gig. And um, I sat around with these like-minded people, and a, a, a comedian from the circuit would, would just explain how the comedy circuit worked and the sort of things, a few skills. I'd never really got a lot of info from that. But there's only actually two people from 
from that group, me and Eddie Izzard, mm. he was sat next to me. We were the two people that went on to make a career out of it. Wow, okay. And so when you use it with all those skills in your kit bag, what happens when you go on stage? So, um, well, the first time you go on stage, you, have, um, you haven't tried your material out. You know, you're, you're, you don't, you've got no stage skills. You don't know how to pace it. You don't know any mic technique. You know nothing. Um, and there's an, it, what I loved about doing stand-up comedy early on, and, 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 and the things I, I miss most is, is how much you learn in those first couple of years. The first thing I learned when I went on stage was wait for the audience to laugh. I just rattled through my material and I didn't, um, when the audience laughed, I talked over them. And of course, that's, you know, that's not really the whole point of it. The point <laughs> is to let them laugh. And that's the whole point of timing. And that's the whole point of a live um, interaction with the audience that you listen to them and then you, you, um, you adjust as, as, you, as your relationship um, sort of progresses during your set. So, um, so the first thing I learned was, was, was let them laugh. And, and 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 hold and hold the pauses. Lots more is is learned in the pauses than in the talking. Well, let's listen to an example of uh, of what happened once Jeff had learned his craft and learned to let them laugh. And indeed, they did. Here he is describing Australia's Karatha. This is in the Opera House. This is, this is actually a step up from Milasha, which is in a place called Karatha over on the west coast. <laughs> oh, you know it. The middle of nowhere. You put a dollar in a parking meter, you get two days. <laughs> 4,000 people and two surnames in the Carrafa area. So it's nice to be here. Oh, I love Australia. People always try and compare England to Australia. I think, how can we? You live on a continent. We live on five acres off the coast of France. <laughs> you can't compare. You've got a 90-mile beach. We haven't got one of them. We'd have nowhere to put it. <laughs> Okay, the beast has arrived. Where's that going? And I love all the icons. Of course, nice to be at the Sydney Opera House. Beautiful icon. We've got Uluru, of course, in the Northern Territory. Uh, the Great Ocean Road in Victoria. The, uh, the Barrier Reef. Bunnings. All the wonderful icons <laughs> of Australia. Have you been in Bunnings? What's the employment policy in Bunnings? They'll take bloody anybody, won't they? <laughs> old people. That's where you send your old people, isn't it? Once they stop being useful to society, you make them work in Bunnings. <laughs> for the last few productive years of their lives. I've got two little boys, Lucifer and Voldemort, two lovely lads. <laughs> People say, Jeff, what are the myths of being a parent? Well, one is that they grow up so fast. They don't, folks, they don't. It's glacial. Years they've been hanging around me. And this, this other myth, that because you've got kids, people think you like all kids. No, no, you don't. Kids are like farts. You tolerate your own, but everyone else is a bloody disgusting. <laughs> there you go, Jeff Green of the City Opera House. So how do you come up with all that material? Because as we listen, there is a laugh every, I exposed, uh, 10 seconds. Uh, well, I, I, I like to have a lot of laughs. I, 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 go, I panic when there's, when there's silence. I admire other comedians that can do a shaggy dog story, you know, um, just a few titters and as they progress to one big... Dave Allen, for example, mm -hmm. would be somebody that you would know that does, does the, the long build-up and then the big laugh at the end. I like to get a big belly laugh uh, um, regularly. Um, well, of course, one of the joys of, of coming to Australia as a Brit is that you're an outsider, 
And so you get the opportunity to look at a, a community and look at a society with fresh eyes. And you can use uh, those eyes to uh, illustrate uh, to the audience their world. And of course, the thing about audiences all, all over the world, they want you to talk about them, mm. you know, and, 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 and that's, that's where you get your your big laughs when when we're talking about their the things they know so um and it chimes with them that you, you took us to bunnings there and and, you, and it chimes it chimes with reality doesn't it it, it ch- yes and it's stuff that you've just taken for granted the thing with that richard though is it fades as you um as you live here longer the the world doesn't sit the the world of australia doesn't seem quite so strange and mm. so um you know you find it harder and harder to to find new jokes and of course uh, after 10 years people say well haven't you worked the place out yet uh, so, yeah, so it's, I always say to young comics, if they come over here, you know, use those first few weeks when the world is new and j- get your notepad out, because that's where I, I, I do a lot of my writing. Actually, on my phone now, but, um, you know, as I'm walking around, I, I, I write stuff, I, I think of ideas. Um, I also try and write on a, on a blank piece of paper. I have the show title, and then I just try and write according to that show title. That's harder. And then, and then I ad-lib on stage when I've got the audience in front of me and the adrenaline is going and the relationship is working. Um, that just builds a lot of creativity in the moment. And I, and I record my shows so I can hear how they've, they've done uh, and then I in- incorporate them back so I'd have to remember them halfway through the set. Yeah, what's worked and what hasn't. Uh, we're talking to Jeff Green. We're getting to, getting to know some of our TGIF regular Gillis Jean Kitson is ahead. So you, you mentioned coming to Australia. I think it was about 10 years ago, Australian wife, and you decided to, to, to move out. What, why did you decide to do that? And, and what was it like when you first arrived? Um, well, I was doing very well in the UK. I was living with my wife, who's from Melbourne. I met her at the uh, 1999 uh, Comedy Festival here in Melbourne. And then um, she came to live with me and we had the kids and um, I mean I'd had three best-selling books and uh, very nice life on the radio um, touring and uh, TV and then um, and it looked it looked great from the outside um, but then my wife my wife's dad passed away here in Australia and um, and so she had to come back and um, see him before he died and then decided that she didn't want to come back to England. And it was, you know, it was a case of <laughs> uh, either I came to Australia or I didn't see my family again. But actually, you know, it was a really simple decision because I was ready. I, I've, I, do you know, I live my life by two expressions, Richard. Do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. That's that's one I whenever I'm at a crossroads in my life, and the other one is the Mark Twain expression, um, in 20 years' time you'll regret the things you didn't do more than the things you did do. And so, so em- embrace um, the embrace the adventure, basically. Embrace, yes, yeah, and um, and don't look back with regret. I, those so, those same um, um, expressions came to me when I decided to pick up the phone and call for an open spot at the comedy store. And then when Fiona said, "I want you to come to Melbourne," this was a, right through, right at the in the middle of the GFC. And uh, my half my, my my savings were in a bloody Icelandic bank. Um, the world was crashing around us, and I just thought, "Yes, uh, yeah, I'm coming. I want to I want to mm-hmm. start from scratch." I want to. I want to tr- um, throw my. Heart. I've, I've been back occasionally to the UK, but basically, when I came, I made the decision to to, to be here f- for for good. Mm. And you, you know, you mentioned your mum and, and sitting by the radio, listening to Australia on 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 the the the, the, the family uh, the family radio thing. 
you're obviously very close to her. How have you kept in touch with her? So, um, my, well, I've, I've, I was writing these letters to my mum, and um, in fact, one of my shows was a, was a, um, a show about letters. Uh, it was called Letters Home, and it was, it was sort of like um, it was a, a, a period of ten years where I, where I, I sent a, a letter recording all of my life in Australia, and then I just put them in, uh, put them into an order, I edited them, and then I, um, I presented it to the audience last year. Mm. Um, so you know, so I write to mum, I write her email send a little um, video messages, you know, all the things everyone else does, I suspect. My mum was 80 last week and um, still in great health. I saw her a couple of years ago. In fact, she saved my life, Richard, my mother. Um, uh, have you got time for me to tell you yes, this story? Course, but yes. I was in... I was in. Um, I was about to go on stage in Chester at the Chester Comedy Festival. It was their first festival. It's my hometown, as, as we as we know, and I was headlining their um, town hall show. So I'm ironing my shirt before I go on. I stripped to the waist. It's um, July. We're having a heat wave, and my mum wants to iron my shirt for me. I said, "Look, mum, I'm in my fifties and I iron a shirt." <laughs> and as she's walking past me, she says, "Jeff, what's that on your back?" And I said, uh, what is it, Mum? I don't know. She says, oh, there's a mole on your back. She says, have you had it long? I said, well, I can't see it. And she said, oh, it's there. It's bigger than the others. And I said, oh, no, I've, I've never seen it. She said, well, get it checked out. So I said, yeah, I will do. So I went and did the show and then came back to Australia. And when I landed in Australia, I get this text message from my mum, get that mole checked. So I went the next day to um, the mole clinic here in Melbourne and they checked it and they said, um, I'll come back in a week and we'll tell you your results. And I went back a week later and they said, you need to send your mum some flowers, which is a sort of nice way of telling me some bad news. And I went, what is it? And they went, that's a uh, melanoma that you've got on your back. And um, luckily it's only at 0.2 millimetres, but in a few months' time we would be having a very different conversation with you than we're having now. She's a good mum. She's a good mum, <laughs> Jeff. She is. <laughs> Jeff she, was in, she was a nurse back in the day, so um, they're, 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 our medical workers are going through a, a rightly, some, 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 a renaissance, mm. or rightly being recognised for the role they play in our society. They sure are. Now, Jeff Green is, is here. We've talked, Jeff, about your mum. We've talked about your Australian wife. And, of course, there are these two children. Here's, let's listen in to Jeff explaining why, well, we've got to love our kids. And, of course, you love your kids. Of course you love your kids. You've got to love them. You can't divorce them, can you? You can't go, look, kids, it's just not working. We want different things. I want to be happy. You don't want me to be happy. <laughs> All this nonsense that children belong to you, they don't. You belong to them. Most parents are living in an advanced form of Stockholm Syndrome. That phenomenon where the victim falls in love with the abuser. <laughs> Often I'll say to my wife, I'll distract them with ice creams, love. You make a run for it, all right? <laughs> it's too late for me. Save yourself. <laughs> of course, you always remember the birth. Or is that the birth? That's what... Uh, you've got to be at the birth now as the dad. You've got to cut the cord now as the dad. That's what you get to do. Because you used to just you used to just be a tool standing in the corner handing out snacks, wouldn't you? Cheesy nibble, anybody, but now it's... Uh, you can cut the cord. They said, will you cut the cord, Mr Green? I said, have you got nobody more qualified? <laughs> I did go to antenatal classes, but I wasn't paying attention. I was only really there for the biscuits. <laughs> and 
it's terrifying cutting the cord. Like they give you surgical scissors, and it feels like the inner tube on a bicycle, and it's really hard to get through. And they're shouting at you, cut it, cut it! You think you might cut it, then you'll fly around the room, but like a balloon or something. Or they go, you've got a lovely baby boy, snip, but a girl's just as nice. Oh, that's fantastic. Jeff Green is, is with us. Uh, you've done a lots of stand-up, of course, and, and panel shows. You've also written stand-up material for others, for Joe Brand, Jack D, Steve Coogan, Lee Evans, all those sorts of people. Uh, is he, that must be a very different technical skill, imagining someone else and then trying to craft something for them. Um, it is. You have to get into their voice. You know, we're often comedians, um, they're, they're told, you know, find your voice. That's, um, it's, 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 it's such an easy thing to say, but it's really hard. When you're starting out, what is my voice? What do I want to say? Um, but you have to get into their head. I enjoy writing jokes. I mean, I, often I see them as puzzles. You know, you've got two or three bits of information that you want to get out and um and i try and make put them in in the in the order that will get a belly laugh at the end with the minimum number of words required to get from a to b um often though the 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 issue with writing for other comedians is because you're sat in a room with them and they're going through their jokes and then you you try and make that make their jokes better or or spin off onto something that's even more interesting to them because they're paying um but uh (laughs) Often I'm, I'm, you know, you'll give them a joke and you go, oh gosh, I wish I hadn't given them that joke. <laughs> Especially if you're work, if you're a working comic, because you're torn between your own set that always needs refreshing, and of course the material that you're giving to them, which might be great. Yeah. And also, often they they don't they don't tell people that they that they. They, they don't want to tell people that they've got writers. There's some kind of shame to it. So often, the, I remember Lee Evans would say, yeah, I took the week off and I wrote that joke. And I'm watching him from the side going, you never wrote that joke. <laughs> that was my joke. Well, all we can say as Australians is we're very pleased that sweet talking siren of a Melbourne woman managed to tempt you over to Australia and then said, once we're here, mate, I'm not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we got to keep you, uh, Jeff uh, Green. It's been a great pleasure to have you on. Thank God it's Friday over the years, but very nice pleasure to get you to know you a little bit better this afternoon. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, uh, UK comedian uh, and TGIF regular Jeff Green on our isolation TGIF special in which we're getting to know some of the people who've entertained us over the years a little bit better, hearing their own uh, stories. In a bit more detail, Gene Kitson will be coming along next on Thank God It's Friday, but in coming weeks, until we get our audience back, you'll hear lots of uh, the voices and hear some of their stories. Thank God It's Friday with Richard Glover. There will be more of our TGI regulars over the next few weeks, including Mandy Nolan and Wendy Harmer, but right now it's the turn of our TGIF pal, the wonderful Gene Kitson, and she joins us on the line. Gene, hello. Hello, Richard. How well, are you? <laughs> very good. And like Jeff, you know, we've heard snippets of your childhood in TGIF episodes, but I don't know if we've had the full story. So let's let's hear it now, because <laughs> we've heard a lot about Sorrento and your teenage years. Maybe too much. <laughs> yes, I was thinking that. You know, this is about. I was looking at TGIF and on my um, on my filing system on my computer, and the first email I had from you that I can find is two thousand and one. So it's nearly twenty years. Nearly and twenty probably, years. 
plundered my life, you know, especially the teenage years. Well, I haven't. uh, Yes, maybe, but we'll come to that. I haven't heard much about the first 12 years because they're not in Sorrento. They're actually in Lilydale, aren't they? Yes, beautiful Lilydale, which is in the Yarra Valley. And when I was growing up, it was all dairy farms and luscious green fields and fat cows and mushrooms. And it was before it became the, you know, the wine producing capital of Victoria that it is now. There were no vineyards then. It was just purely dairy farms and orchards. And I grew up mushrooming and riding my bike all around the paddocks and the empty country lanes. And Dame Nellie Melba was our local famous woman. She mm. she was in Coldstream and her house was there and her her grave was in actually in the cemetery in Lilydale. And what we used to do for a bit of excitement as kids, we'd ride our bikes to the cemetery and look at all the gravestones and scare each other. And and then when we got a bit older... And, and, and sing ex- Home Sweet Home. Wasn't that her big hit? <laughs> <laughs> this, what, what was it from, um, uh, you know, this cold hand? Uh, well, on her, she had this special... She had this amazing grave. It was behind a clipped head and it was all marble and um, she she uh, uh, had a, on her gravestone was a, a quote from Puccini, you know, I don't regret anything, something like that. But mm-hmm. we used to sit on her grave and and that's where we had our first cigarette because no one could see us. So well, she, 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 she had so many return tours, you must have been thinking she'd come out of the grave. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And there's a great... There's a great comment um, about Dame Nellie Melba where, you know, people said, um, would say, are you from Sydney or are you from Melbourne? And she, and, and she would say, she said one day at a, at a big concert, I have one foot in Melbourne and one foot in Sydney and some, you know, joker up the back yelled out, oh, no, I live in Albury. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. What's <laughs> mum and dad doing? What, why are they there? Well, my... Parents moved up there when they were first married and my dad had a garage and he actually had um, Roy Kitson Motors and he was a BMC dealer. He dealt, he was a mechanic and then he got this this um, dealership for uh, all the English cars, Mini Miners and um, MGs and Wolseleys and the old Austins. So we used to have, um, we used to drive, mum used to drive the trade-ins so we had a different car like every week. We didn't drive the new cars, of course. We drove the old trade-ins. And when mum would come to the school to pick us up, we'd never know what car she'd be in. She'd have to get out and stand by it and, you know, wave to us. Yeah. And are there sisters or brothers? I have an, a younger sister and a younger brother. And um, so we're all within five years of each other. So my sister's two years younger than me, 18 months younger than me, and my brother's two years younger than than her, four years younger than me. And we all went to Lilydale Primary School, which was one of those classic, beautiful little schools in the country. And everyone, you know, it was gentle and the teachers were lovely. and, And we had a really, we had a, you know, a really safe, um, interesting 
upbringing. So we had lots of freedom and we're always on bikes and both my parents worked, which was unusual in those days, but it it was, you know, it was fine. Dad, and we, dad, dad was built, we lived in a tiny little sort of attached house when we were till about the age of four and then mum and dad bought a block of land in this street in Lilydale and it was overlooking the whole of Yarrow Valley and I didn't realize at the time but the people next door their house was designed by Robin Boyd and the people across the road their house was you know architecturally designed by another famous person and then the people the other side theirs was architecturally designed and dad and mum bought this block between all these fancy houses and dad designed and built his own house <laughs> <laughs> and and it was a cute little picture cottage you know tiny cottage weatherboard the pagoda out the front with the roses growing on it but the lounge room had like 11 doors opening onto the lounge room including the bathroom door <laughs> opened onto this lounge room which, which i believe is against planning regulations but still <laughs> with good reason you know because there'd be visitors and the door would open you'd be sitting on the toilet i mean it was ridiculous it was like living in a french farce or something doors would be opening and closing and oh it's very bad yeah, so um, we had a we had a, a really um, good upbringing and lots of uh, you know safe, as I said, safe and somehow secure. And then Dad's business went broke. He got done. He got done by this awful man who took all their all their money. My dad wasn't a great businessman. He was a fantastic mechanic and engineer and. Not such a great architect, but however, but you know, and he'd do all the DIY stuff in the house, like you know, all the electricity and all the wiring and all the plumbing. And so, if you were in the shower and someone flushed the toilet, you'd just get third degree burns, you know. <laughs> and if you, you know, turn the clock on the kitchen stove, it would shoot your chicken across the room. So, everything had a sort of trick to it, but then, yeah, so then we had went through this really hard time and. Mum and Dad were, you know, all I remember is there was a lot of weeping and a lot of stress in the family and I just finished grade six and um, Dad had a cousin who lived at Sorrento, not who lived there, he had a little holiday house down there and um, he offered the family just to get away to Sorrento for a few weeks and have a bit of a break from all this sadness and mayhem and figure out what to do and you know how people say they'll go on a holiday when they're on a holiday they say you know oh I wish we didn't have to go home we just never went home dad got a job in the local garage and we just never went back to Sorrento. So, so this is uh this must I be mean, like to Lilydale. yeah for, for people who don't know Sorrento's you know beachside you're a bit out of Melbourne but still this is a country girl I imagine coming to a kind of surfy lifestyle isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, oh, and then I had to go to Rosebud High and I was this innocent country girl. When we went into Melbourne from Lilydale, we still wore long white socks, little black Alice shoes, you know, with a strap across, white gloves and sometimes a hat to go into the big smoke to shop. That's how, like, old-fashioned we were in many ways. And then we moved to Sorrento and then I started Rosebud High and Mum had rung up the school and said, um, they'd said, oh, you know, because I didn't have a uniform or anything. They said, oh, you didn't need to have the uniform the first day of school. So I rock up 
long white socks, a little woolen, you know, hand-me-down dress I got from my cousins with a little white crocheted collar and a little headband. I looked as innocent as, and I rock up and this school is just you know, wild surfy school, Rosebud at, in those days in the 70s was everyone like smoked and had school uniforms right up to their navel as short as you could possibly get it. Like at most schools you could be excused class if your period started, but at Rosebud you could only leave the classroom if your contractions had started. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was like then. It's different different now, but it was such a shock to me. I had to rethink like who I was and how how to behave and how you know like you know what I what I want how I saw myself. So So did you try you to know. bend yourself to them or did you try to get them to bend themselves to you? Well, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I suppose, no, I never, you know, I had this image, Richard, that I was going to get on the school bus from Sorrento and I was going to lead everyone in a sing-along like Carousel or, you know, Oklahoma. This is how, this was my mentality. I had this sort of romantic version of what life was like. Because at primary school, we used to, with the boys, we used to put on old dancing, you know, tapes and do like, we dance with each other in the shelter shed. It was innocent. So I had this image I was going to go to this school and I'd get friends by, you know, ha- having a sing-along. I don't know who, what I imagined. I c- couldn't sing, mind you. And instead you had to, I, you know, I had to get my dress right up as high as it could go. I had to learn to smoke really quickly. I had to pretend I was really, you know, very advanced and I suppose I didn't try to bend them to me. No, they were way too confident and way too scary. You just desperately, desperately try to fit in. Well, yeah, and there was this, you know, and I suppose my first friends were like me, you know, a bit shy because I was shy. Hmm? I've been, I was a shy kid, so a bit shy and um, not a lot of confidence but just keeping an eye on everything <laughs> to make sure the, the mean girls didn't beat you up, which they did do to some people. You know, in hockey, you could easily find yourself like flat on the ground and being whacked with hockey sticks. So you had to, you know, you're on guard. And um, and I suppose in the first few years I, w- I was sort of c- keeping my head down a bit. But at the same time, you always want to be cool, you know. You don't want to be the daggy kid. But I was also like a string bean too. So in at a school like that in those days, the pecking order was how popular you were with the boys. Now I had no breasts. I had no shape. I was long and skinny with big feet and, you know, I, I, I had buck teeth until I was about 15 and had braces on. So my, I was way down the pecking order, way, way down it. But I remember this girl came from overseas and she in year um, eight and she was talking about how daggy Rosebud High was compared to her school in London. And I remember her saying that in London everyone had sex audries in the cupboard at school. And I'm thinking, sex audries, what the hell are they? And now... <laughs> 
Now I realise either she was bunging it on too and didn't know the word orgies or I misheard. <laughs> but for years I was thinking about see, sex orgies, you know, yeah. like. I think it's, it's, a, it's an orgy with someone called Audrey. It's great. Yeah, sort of like, yeah, like breakfast at Tiffany's in the cupboard or something. <laughs> just a very, very limited group. Uh, Jean Kitson <laughs> is here for our TGIF in isolation session where we're getting to know some of our TGIF regulars a little bit better. You you painted this great picture of this shy girl trying to fit in. How did the shy girl end up becoming a showbiz girl and end up being a comic? Well, it was really very, very gradual. I mean, our family, uh, no matter what happens, they always like turning a story into um, something funny. And they like a funny story. So anything bad will end up as a hilarious story. And they start by laughing about themselves first. So I was used to that sort of environment where if we were telling a story about something awful that had happened to us, you know, you start by taking the mickey out of yourself. And I always, I always liked taking the mickey. My, I always liked, I remember the first time I made a particular friend laugh and that feeling I was so fantastic because I think she might have been a new friend too when I think about it. But I remember we were down at Sorrento. We were walking around along the foreshore. We'd stopped to sit on a rock and there was some birds flying past. This is how vivid it was for me. There were birds flying past. And mind you, I can't remember what I said that was funny. But I remember <laughs> saying something and I remember her laughing, something about the birds. And, and, and I remember her laughing and I remember the feeling it gave me. I just loved it. And so it became sort of my modus operandi then to make people laugh. And and I thought I did, but when um when I was uh when I ended up doing the big gig and there was this interview in a magazine with me and I got a phone call from someone who I hadn't seen for twenty years, but we'd gone to Rosebud High together and in the magazine I said, said I thought that I was uh the class clown and she rang up to say that um, she'd read the article and she didn't remember me being funny at school at all. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that, yes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. She was so, just a beanpole, yeah, an yeah, unfunny beanpole. Right. Exactly. So exactly. You, do get on, you do get on stage, though. You get on stage at Lee Joke in, in, in Melbourne. What was that like when you first tried to do this, not for the girlfriend, you know, watching the birds, but for an audience? Yes, well, I suppose I'd, I by then I'd been to um, uh, like I'd been to Ruston State College and got a Bachelor of Education in Drama, Media, and Dance. And drama then in the seventies, everyone was doing these serious political plays about you know communism and socialism and capitalism and all this. And even while people were very serious young insects, I was still up the back, you know, having fun and which you know which and making people laugh. So I think. And um, so I was, I then was a teacher for a year and that was a disaster. I then worked in theatre and education because I really, and during that time in theatre and education for two years, I wrote plays with the other members of the team to take to schools. And my inclination was always to have fun and to make it humorous. And then I went travelling for a couple of years overseas. And then when I came back to Melbourne, I couldn't get a job. No, I I hadn't been trained as an actor. 
so I couldn't get any auditions. And the only place I could, um, and then I thought, well, the only time I'm going to get a job is if I'm seen to be doing something. And the only place you could actually do something was on at tryout nights at Le Joke upstairs of the last last. And so I wrote a comedic character called Bubbles, and um, and I. It, it was in character, so I wasn't a stand-up when I started. I, I'm not really a stand-up, but although that's sort of what I'm sort of doing later on in life. But it, I wrote this character called Bubbles, and um, and that's and that's and when I did that, you know, it did it went pretty well actually. It wasn't too bad, and um, and then I met other comedians, and and you know, so it was really gradual. And then I met other comedians, including the people from Let the Blood Run Free. Um, who said, you want to join us and do this impro group in Let the Blood Run Free. Mm. So I um, I joined them and every Wednesday we'd improvise this show and it went for years and then became a television show. And then it became a television show. Here's Jean playing the nurse in the spoof soap opera set in a hospital from 1990, Let the Blood Run Free. Bells and Christophers, at last, here I am between your thick and creamy walls. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. Oh, at least I would be if it wasn't for the tragic secret that lies locked and bolted beneath my pulsating breast. Oh, good, sick people. Come with me. Yes, <laughs> From let the blood run free, and and, and, and during the, the, you might have heard that little sort of slapping noise during that. That's the gloves, isn't it? Oh, the rubber gloves became. I think there's a there's a word for it in comedy, but it's you know the shtick. And my my rubber gloves, and then I fell in love with good Doctor Good, and my name was Nurse Pam Sandwich, and and he'd you know we 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 were sort of thwarted and innocent in our love, and he'd get the end of the rubber gloves and pull off the fingers. This is a true story from this morning. I was sitting at at home uh, trying to. Uh, choose a little bit to, to play and Wendy Harmer rang me up to talk to me about something and I said, oh, I'm just watching Jean and, and, and let the blood run free and, and Wendy said, ah, those gloves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they were a gift. It's always, I love a bit of slapstick and they, you know, I, that's, we grew up on all those Buster Keaton films and the plank and, you know, and uh, Three Stooges and anything physical was, and so having those to play with, they were, they were fun. It was, it was a, a good, it was a good show. It was good skills, you know, to learn because mm. we'd have the outline of a story, but then we had to just get on stage and make it up. And, and talking about Wendy, of course, the next big thing that happens, lots of little things happen, but the next big thing happens is the big gig. It leads to a, a, a lot more prominence for you, but it also leads to a husband for you. I know. The big gig changed my life. It led to, like, a vast thrilling audience you know and a big audience it never had before and it, and I'm and working live on television and meeting the adorable and brilliant Patrick Cook and just falling in love with Patrick and then you know we had a baby so and then we had another one so you know it was a an amazing, amazing time. I mean the big gig changed my life on so many levels because once you get a big public audience, it changes your um, you know, your working life and so many opportunities evolve and then and then you become a mother, which 
is the biggest change of all, I think. Mm. And I was old too, you know, like I was an elderly mother by then. I was an elderly prima gravida because I was 36 <laughs> when I got married. And elderly prima gravida, it sounds like a pizza, but it means woman affected by gravity. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, 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 you say, uh, you know, it's led to all these things. One of the things that's led to more recently is, is, is using all those comic skills for quite serious things. And here, um, more recently, it's been about how to help elderly parents. That's the most recent book. But before that, uh, a real focus on, on menopause. Here's a bit of Jean talking relatively recently at an International Women's Day event. For me, there are two milestones in every woman's life and they come with the package. They are puberty and menopause, the beginning and end of the hormonal marathon. When I was menopausal and started getting hot flushes and night sweats, I thought to myself, as all of us do, I wonder if my mum went through this. And if she did, I wonder how long it lasted. So I rang my mum and I said, Mum, did you go through menopause? And she said, Oh my God, it was the worst five years of my life. <laughs> five, this is a woman who has lived through the Depression and World War II. And we're giving birth to three children. And that was the worst five years of her life. <laughs> from the International Women's Day event. You seem to be very keen these days to try to use all the skills that you learnt in those, you know, the, the slapstick of let the blood run free onwards, but to use them to communicate about quite serious things sometimes. Yes, well, I think it's a really good way to open conversations about things that people are um, frightened of or they're, they're insecure about or they're embarrassed about. It can relieve the shame of situations. There's still a lot of women who won't talk about their bodies because they still have a sense of shame about about things. There are still women who are dying of gynecological cancer because they don't want to go to the doctor and get their bits checked out, you know. So as a as a comedian, it's it's like it's the best way to just break the ice, break the ice, talk about it, talk about what's going on, talk about uh, and talk about serious things like um, our elderly and and how we're treating them and death and dying, which because hmm. that's what it's all about. Sometimes I think we put our elderly away and we separate them from us because we're really. Um, we've just disconnected from death. We're frightened of it. We don't talk about it anymore. So being able to, you know, they, they, we even use euphemisms such as passing or, you know, moving forward. Oh, how's your dad? Oh, he's a euphemism. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Whereas, you know, like if we just call it by what it is and we open the conversation, when you talk about things, you remove fear. You really do. And if you can talk about them with humour, it's great. You know, and people, a lot of good people have, you know, come before me and have. Bob Hope has a great quote about when he turned a hundred. His wife asked him, "Where did he?" She said, "Where do you want to be buried?" And he said, "Surprise me." <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's just really good to start conversations by having by being able to laugh about things and not feel frightened. I find Jean that's Kitson. what I try to do. <laughs> you, and you do it superbly. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Richard. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. This is Jean Kitson, and thanks for being part of our TGIF in ISO series with this week, Jeff Green and the wonderful Jean Kitson. Uh, next week, Mandy Nolan will kick us off. Until then, I'm Richard Glover. And on ABC Radio, thank God it's Friday. 
Geiz. Yes, it is now time for another Letter from America with Tommy Dean as our TGIF regular returns home to the US. But after two decades in Australia, will he ever be able to fit back in? Tommy, hello. Welcome again as uh, you prepare your escape from America. Planning the escape, but uh, by golly, by golly. I'm in a I'm in a poetically poignant mood at the moment, Richard, because today was the last day of high school for my son. This entire wow. trip to America was all about him finishing up his high school years in America, and today is that day. At exactly 1.23 p.m. Central Standard Time, <laughs> he concluded his last Zoom class, which is completely not the way this is meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> And I couldn't help but think that we could have done this whole half a year back in Australia. But uh, it's come to an end. My son has finished high school. As any parent listening will know, or parents who've had this happen, this is one of those moments in life because you suddenly remember them when they're kind of five and what they were like when they were 10. And you, you, you recycle through your whole sort of home movie of their life, don't you? It's so true. I did not expect it at all. I'm a pretty, you know, just take it as it comes kind of person, living mostly in the now, and I was not expecting it. In fact, just the other day, I was uh, having a chat with a couple of old high school buddies, and we were talking about the aging process, and one of the guys started talking, and I didn't realize this was a thing, but supposedly men, as they get older, their testosterone lowers, but their estrogen goes up. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a B cup already. Yeah. Totally beat up. It also explains all the crocheting and crying at commercials. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's so sad. But then I, what, what I think what hit me was uh, the, a lot you, of the you, parents. You know it's bad when you're watching The Notebook. <laughs> oh, no. Just seeing, just seeing the ad for it will set me off. Not again. What happened to Jim Rockford? He's such a sook. <laughs> but he, uh, the, all the parents here. And they've been so I should have seen this coming. You know, all all the parents at the high school here, I should say all, but you know, a large group of the parents at the high school here have uh, been sort of, you know, celebrating the senior year in the world of coronavirus with pictures and talk of how they lost out on so much in this last semester and this and that. But what I was not expecting uh, was the big stream today of all the pictures, the before and after, you know, here's the baby shot, here's the graduation shot. And I was, I just, it was a blubbery mess. I suddenly <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> I can't believe my son is growing up. Do you remember when Ash was born? Born? Oh, man. I remember the discussion about it because, you know, when I, my wife is my second wife. Uh, only in terms of math, uh, as far as the world of love is concerned. She's my first and only wife. Uh, but uh, when I, you know, I didn't want to get married a second time. And, and then she said... Uh, I do want to get married, and that's when I realized I have a very fluid philosophy about how I live my life. You're, you do what is asked of you. If the if the well, asker just, is someone of, uh, of uh, you know, it's what she wanted. It was mostly about the party. That seemed like a lot of fun. Uh, but I said, look, I don't mind getting married again. But I clearly have uh, decided I do not want to have children. <laughs> about a year later, she said, I want to have children. I said, okay, I told you I have a very fluid philosophy. <laughs> You want to have a baby? 
we're going to have a baby. Yeah. But then that was quite difficult uh, because it turns out I had my manalysis done. Do what I did there. I took the word man and analysis and put them yeah. together. Yeah. Manalysis. Uh, and I'm not ashamed to say that apparently I am, and I believe the word is infertile. <sighs> I have no sperm cells in my body that you can count. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were going through IVF or setting up for IVF and the doctors were quite astounded, uh, at how few that I had. And then, and then my wife got pregnant. Uh, without IVF, just one day she yeah. announced that she was pregnant, and that'll put a lot of pressure on a young marriage when medical experts are telling you that you <laughs> have no sperm, and your wife is telling you I'm pregnant. that she is pregnant. And then I start thinking maybe I'm Joseph and I need to get a donkey. <laughs> Where's the closest manger? It's the only thing that makes any sense. Uh, but it turns out uh, apparently I had one, one very dedicated sperm. It only takes one. It only takes one. That's all I sent. Why waste all that extra effort? Who yeah. needs crowds? I was social distancing it a long time ago. <laughs> uh, so then he was born. I remember, I remember very much all oh, the fun. Uh, my son was born in 2002 in June, uh, which uh, soccer fans or football fans would recognize as the World Cup. And that was the World Cup. Uh, the World Cup of soccer was taking place in that time. And I was watching a very exciting match at around 11 p.m. And my wife had been having very difficult coming into the last days of the pregnancy, uh, very difficult times. Wasn't quite sure, getting false contractions. And we were watching a very exciting soccer match late at night. And she started getting contractions, and she said, "I think you should call the hospital." Hmm. And you so said, "Just, the- just wait till this this move is over." Well, it was a very exciting game. I mean, that's what, that's what it really came down to because I called, <laughs> I called the the nurse at the hospital and, and the nurse on the phone is saying, oh, that sounds like it's happening. You should bring her in right now. And then I was like, oh, so you think that maybe just 20 more minutes, let it go 20 more minutes, <laughs> see if anything changes and then call you back. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm saying bring him in right now. Okay, we'll call you back in 20 minutes. <laughs> so, so the match finished, very exciting finish. Uh, that was the year that the United States made it to the quarterfinals. Oh, what a year it was. And it took her, we went racing to the hospital. And then that, you know, it's all that moment, that moment of, this is so exciting. Here we go. The car ride, all the excitement. And then you pull up at the hospital and they go wheeling her in. And it's all like an emergency room TV show. And then 45 hours later, you're like, you know, deeply protracted pregnant. You know, she's, <laughs> just wouldn't happen. And I'll never forget the doctor. Because you, you could have fitted in another three uh, matches. That's what I was saying. What are you doing? It's like, we missed like a whole flight. The pools are being decided, and you're mucking around. Get with it, lady. <laughs> in fact, the U.S. was playing that night, and the doctor came in. I don't believe you said, get with it, lady, because I don't believe you would be alive had you, had you said that. But she was on so many drugs that I can't pronounce that I could say anything I wanted. I had a lot of things to say in those 42 hours <laughs> that I knew she would never remember. A lot of soliloquies, a lot of soliloquies, uh, staying just out of arm's reach of the bed. That's the key to those soliloquies. <laughs> the doctor came in in the afternoon about 2 o'clock. And he said, look, you know, we've been trying and trying to do this uh, classic uh, naturally, but we can, or, you know, or, or we might have to go cesarean. That was the argument. Um, we could do an emergency cesarean. Uh, how do you feel about that? And I uh, uh, said, well, doctor, uh, it's 2 o'clock now. Uh, the USA is playing a very important <laughs> match in the World Cup at 5. And he said, 
without missing a beat. Emergency cesarean it is. <laughs> God bless Australian doctors. So we set her up for that, uh, took her in. And then, you know, they do the cesarean. You don't get to do anything as a father in that situation. They just, I kept saying, let me cut her open. And they're like, no, this is our job. I thought, come on. I'm a cook. <laughs> I know a few things about this. And the whole time, you know, because they, they, they do the thing. It's, I set up the screen. So they, they look sort of like an episode of MASH in the middle of your wife. And then you're sitting at her head. Uh, but she's so drugged out that it's not like you're comforting her. You're just kind of sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the baby is comes out and I it's I want it to be romantic and poignant and poetic but because of the way the screens were set up it literally looked like the toaster popped Cling! <laughs> up comes the baby out of the toaster slot they hand it up over and then all the joy floods over you and her and I are both crying in tears and again out of the corner of my eye I just hear the doctor say you know we really are quite lucky to share in such special moments in people's lives yes doctor you're right we really are very special you know, the USA is playing tonight here in a quarterfinal <laughs> match. Yes, we should all get together and watch that. <laughs> so that was, uh, oh, man, I remember that. Oh, yeah, and also because uh, the hospital that we were in, uh, they had nitrous oxide available uh, bedside, uh, and they just left that open. Anybody could do it. Because you were going through a lot. Oh, man, 45 hours. That's a lot of time. <laughs> that stuff's great. Uh, what I didn't realize uh, is that when you do nitrous oxide, especially medical-grade nitrous oxide, it's the opposite of helium. Like, it makes your voice actually go really low. Oh, does it? And my voice is already low. When I did nitrous oxide and then spoke. It would actually, like, rumble the building. <laughs> That's how they caught me. He's doing it again. <laughs> You're shaking the system. Get off the nitrous oxide, mister. I remember all of that. I mean, the other thing I really remember from the time is, especially with the first one, is is that that moment where you walk out of the hospital with the baby and you think, what? They're letting these two people who have no idea leave this building with this tender new life. They don't even let you. They make you. I was like, you sure you don't <laughs> want to keep her here another week? Like, just one more week because that'll get us to the finals. <laughs> And by this time, the USA was knocked out, so I was less entranced with the World Cup, but just a few more days, please. And then he went, uh, you know, then there's that flash of all the toddlerhood, and then I see him flash into his first day at school. We take him up to kindergarten, his first day wearing his fancy Australian school uniform as he goes to school. And the first primary school that he went to, I was surprised to discover, was the same primary school. Uh, that former Prime Minister John Howard went to. Ah, in Elwood or somewhere. Yeah, up in, uh, it's called Undercliff Primary School, quite famously uh, John Howard. Well, as soon as we found that out, uh, we pulled him out and got him in a real school. <laughs> My wife was having none of that. <laughs> what, she thought the conservative politics might be catching and, you know, might be on the seats or something? Uh, yeah, she, uh, her, her and her whole family are very famously on the opposite side of politics. <laughs> <laughs> to John Howard and his crew. And there was no way, once we discovered that, that they were going to stay there. We are going back. So, uh, and that was actually quite a, one of those, you know, little shifty sliding door moments. Because, of course, all the parents that you meet in that time will be most likely the people that you spend your life with. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. So we yeah. moved over to this new primary school in Merrickville. And, and we still have a world of, of beautiful friends that we've known ever since that time. That's one of the best things about having kids is that you suddenly 
uh, have this, you, you have friends drawn from kind of everywhere, not just from, you know, the, the people you work with or the people who are like you. You find friends who do all sorts of things. Exactly. And it's really weird that it's all just timed around. The only thing that brings you together is that you and your partners all had sex more or less in the same week. <laughs> that is such a joyous reason to be friends. Why are you friends? Well, September was exciting. <laughs> That's very good times in September. And here we are. I thought it even throws like we went to uh we did all the prenatal classes as well. I remember doing all the prenatal classes. Yeah. And this was you know, I shouldn't I should be careful. Anyway, the prenatal, the woman that taught the prenatal classes was a supermodel. She was just a drop dead gorgeous woman. And it was horrible, but it got to the point in the second class they made all the husbands were just individually. We just all knew it, but we knew that in week two, when all of a sudden we were not invited to come into the class, which we were supposed to be in, that all the wives had had a word to their husbands. No, <laughs> there's no way that you're going to watch a supermodel do strange things on a yoga ball <laughs> while we are all sitting around here nine months pregnant. <laughs> that go. So it's like, the primary school was fun, so we had yeah, six years of primary school. That was a delightful... And that, you know, that seemed like it went forever, but of course, all of this is what we're talking about. It blinks past. It mm. felt like forever because I had to take them to school every day, walk them to school, then you had to walk back home, then you had to walk back to school and get them and walk back home. So much walking. <laughs> That's why I was excited about high school. It was just like, look, you're on your own. Mm. You go. But now, now, after today, now I'm like, oh, I could have, I could have walked him to school for four <laughs> more years. <laughs> Why didn't I walk him to school? I don't know if when he was 16, he would have liked you to walk him to school, Tommy. I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> Especially if I cried. Come back and kiss me. <laughs> I'm your father. And then, and then high school, high school, high school did sort of open up that independence. You know, he just, he didn't need to be, he took the bus to school. So he, you know, got himself to school, got himself home from school. Uh, he's now in charge of all his activities. And then when he made the jump over to here in the, uh, year 11, you know, that changed the game extensively. Uh, well, then it's suddenly, but it's also suddenly just the two of you, not, not his sisters, not his mom, just his dad. I know, I know. And there is going to be, we're going to probably talk about this in 10 years time. And I'll be like, I should have talked to him more in that house when we were alone. <laughs> Why didn't I talk to him? Oh, that's right, because he locked himself in his room. Like a teenager. <laughs> said, go away, Dad. Go away, Dad. Quit crying and make me dinner. Yeah. Go and get yourself a bigger bra. <laughs> yeah. But it's all so, I don't know what the word is, fleeting, I think, is the feeling that I'm after. Well, wait till they leave house, to leave home and set up their own house. That's what happens I in know. the end, you know. I know. That's what I, I mean, because I'm, I'm living both sides of it, because for all of this, you know, boohooing, uh, my kids have left me, you know, I'm still the son who's calling my mom saying, look, uh, no, I'm not coming over. I know that I'm very close to you compared to where I normally live, but I'm not going to be able to come see you. I'm a little busy. I've got a child. I don't know if you know how busy it is to be a parent, mom, but I am very busy. <laughs> well, you can't expect Asher to treat you better than you're treating your own mom. They learn from and what they is- see, Tommy. It's so true, and that is why I am screwed. But uh, the trade-off is he does see me call. I mean, I've been trying to instill in him that you know he has to stay in contact with mom. I think son and mom 
is much more important. Uh, my feeling is fathers and dads, fathers and dads. I feel like sons and fathers, sons and dads, mm. sons and dads. That's who we are. I don't know if it's just a man on man, but it just it seems easier. It's just kind of the classic answer when you ring your father is, "I'll put your mother on." Yes, because that's where they know you need to talk to. There's sort of an understanding. You're both men. You know how things are going. <laughs> And he's like, I'm like, man, you got to call your mom. And then he came to a couple of times. He's like, why? I don't understand why I have to talk to mom. Because if you don't, she's going to call me. And then I've got a problem. <laughs> so you not being a good son to your mother means that suddenly my wife is going to have trouble with her husband. And that makes me cranky. Yeah. There are a lot of different relationship hats that daddy wears. <laughs> and I don't want that hat soiled with your lack of initiative. Now you call your mother so she does not call me. What's uh, what's been you know what's been Ash's view uh, having experienced America? He's he's, he's going to come back to Australia, isn't he? He's not going to he's not going to at one at some point say, "Look, Dad, I want to become an American." Uh, I don't know fully. I think he does want to come back ultimately. His current plan right now is we are definitely all coming back to Australia. We come back uh, in June, and then uh, he will take a year uh, gap year to find himself. But he's still hinting that he would like to come back here and go to university here. I mean, he has a lot of great friends that he's made in high school here. Uh, he loves the region, loves the area. So he may make his big move in a year or so. But that's a whole year, Richard. If I think if we've discovered anything in this conversation in the last few minutes, what's a year? It's like forever. A year is forever. <laughs> it'll take so long. But then, the in retrospect, it'll be over in the blink of an eye. <laughs> Blake, why are you going back? <laughs> what am I going to do? So, yes. yeah. Uh, but that's what we're going to do. So he's gapping it. But my theory is, and I feel bad for my daughters because I have a terrible feeling that I am just going to be overbearingly involved in the last two years of their high school experience. <laughs> now you've seen the end of the process. You kind of want no, to hang on no, to it. No, I moment. Just yeah. can't miss out. Is there a bake sale this week? Can I bake something? <laughs> I'll bake something for you. It's <laughs> poor girls. What are you doing, Duke of Edinburgh? I'll go with you. I'll drop you off at camp. I want to go to the camp store and get tents. What are you doing? Can Daddy walk <laughs> you to school? <laughs> Can Daddy walk you to school? Please. <laughs> and they go to two schools, so that's quite a walk. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it'll be fun. But it's um, it's been it's been mystically magical, and yet I think that's the flip side of all poetry. For every you know, universal truth that you feel you've tripped across. You also know that it was tediously annoying step by step. <laughs> well, all, I, of, all of life is better in both retrospect and in anticipation. It absolutely is. Don't you think? I, it is. Even now, as I look out over my little humble home that I have assembled here around me, I can remember the acquisition of each and every one of these small pieces of furniture that adorn my house just like my own little child that I brought into the world, and now I have to send them out. Get out. Get out of the house. Mm-hmm. It is curious that whenever people lecture, lecture you about life, they always say, you've got to live in the moment. But the, moment's all, the moment is awful usually. Why would you want to totally. live there? Far better to live in the, in the anticipated future, glorious, or the remembered past, glorious. Glorious. It's like road trips. I've long felt that life is a road trip. You know, everybody, you know, road trips generally speaking, always have so many great stories. But nobody ever talks about the hours and hours of tedious driving, driving, <laughs> where nothing happens. Standing by the well, car, filling, the up, filling, up, filling up the, the gas. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
But what? yeah, those little bursts. All of life is little bursts of adventure and a whole lot of driving. Anyway, well, my point is, if you, if you need a couch, I've got one. <laughs> and and just just finally, uh, you know, having having told us that beautiful story about Asher as, as he graduates from high school, what would you like to say? to that rather confident young man of yourself who said to your beautiful wife, ah, look, I don't want to have kids. There's nothing, there's no, there's no, there's no point in having kids. I would like to say to her, you never listen to him. Why do you not listen to him? <laughs> he speaks wisdom and truth. If you make him do this, you're going to turn him into a crocheting mess. <laughs> Is that he what could have been a man. Scarves and tears. But that's what I would say. I would say, I would say, cherish the moments. But everybody says that. This is not wisdom that I am discovering and sharing. Everyone knows that. You have to cherish now, knowing that when the now becomes the later, that later now is going to make you want to cherish more that which you didn't cherish back then. It's a whole circle of expectation and regret and surprise. And that's the delight of life. Tommy, on that note. We will speak next week. Thank you. That was Special Letter from America with Tommy Dane. And there'll be another Letter from America with Tommy next week as he and Asher plot their return back home to Australia. You're listening to ABC Radio Sydney.